0: We are in a teaching series called Unreachable with a question mark, having the hard conversations about Jesus with specific categories of people. This weekend is specifically about how to have conversations about Jesus with religious people. And this could be religious people of non-Christian religions or very religious people who participate in a Christian religion, but it is quite possible that you could be very, very religious and still miss Jesus. And so we're going to talk about how to have conversations about Jesus with religious people. One of the classes I took in Bible college was called U.S. Denominations, Religions, and Cults. And we had a project assigned to us where we had to go visit religions that we were not familiar with. And so if it was in your background at all, it was out of bounds. And so I grew up Roman Catholic, and when I was in high school, I started going to a Pentecostal church. And so I could not go visit a Catholic church, and I could not go visit any Pentecostal churches. And it could be a non-Christian religion or just another Christian denomination, and we had to visit several. Um, I'm a bit adventurous, so I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go visit stuff that I just am not familiar with at all. And so the first place me and one of my friends went to was a Mooney church. The Unification Church. Reverend Sun Myung Moon is the founder of this belief system. And we go there and it's close to the University of Minnesota in this creepy looking house with overgrown landscaping and we had had an appointment so we show up and the gentleman that was kind enough to meet with us was explaining to us their belief system. And in a nutshell here's how it goes. You have God the Father, and he creates Adam and Eve, which creates the first trinity. God, Adam, and Eve. Adam and Eve's job was to procreate, have kids, and the kingdom of God would be created through procreation. It's a physical kingdom with God at the head. But there is a problem because Adam and Eve sin. And so God now has to send a second Adam because the first Adam messed up. So God sends Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam. According to the Unification Church, Jesus' mission in coming was to find a wife, get married, and have perfect children so that the kingdom of God could be expanded physically through their procreation. But according to the Mooney Church, Jesus failed in his mission because not only did he not find a wife, but he allowed himself to get killed. This creates the need for the third Adam, who is none other than the Reverend Sun Myung Moon, who is today 92 years old. Um, actually in ICU right now, like he's been in the news because he might be on his deathbed right now. And that's why in the Unification Church, I don't know if you've ever bumped into this, but they have these massive wedding celebrations in arenas. Uh, The reason is that according to them, the kingdom of God is a physical kingdom with God at the head, and the way that you get into the kingdom of God is to be a part of the physical family, which means if you're not born into it, you must marry into it. That is, in a nutshell, the Unification Church. Then I went to a Christian science reading room. These are all over the place. I had never been in one. I had no idea what they were all about. And so I stop in at a Christian science reading room. You don't need an appointment there. They love for you to just pop in. And so I go and I find out that Christian science is based on the writings of a woman named Mary Baker Eddy, who uh, lived in the late 1800s. Uh, had some healing experiences and started studying Scripture and started doing her own writing. And so the Christian science faith is based somewhat on the Bible, but mostly on the writings of this woman named Mary Baker Eddy. And so I'm having this conversation with this woman who is staffing the Christian science reading room. And she's explaining to me that everything is an illusion. In fact, human beings are nothing more than more densely uh, populated collections of molecules. Paradise is all around you. And the way to experience paradise is eventually for you to just dissipate your molecules and become part of the paradise that is all around you. But you are not real and I am not real. And so I asked her this question. Well, if you are not real and I am not real, then how are we having this conversation? (laughs) To which she responded, we're not. (laughs) To which I responded, have a nice day. (laughs) So that in a nutshell is Christian science. Okay, now those are two kind of out there type belief systems. Let let me pull it into Christianity because there's lots of different Christian denominations and people are very, very religious within their denominations. Most of you know I grew up Roman Catholic and today if you go to like my family reunion, you will find Protestants and Catholics all peaceably having meals together, okay? So uh, when I was in high school, I started going to a Protestant church. Now, there were still members of my family that were Roman Catholic, including my parents. Well, my mom and I are fighting one day. It's not a religious fight. We're not even having a religious conversation. But my mom is mad at me. And so she says that she's going to her room, well, I'm just going to go talk to Mary about you. Essentially saying, you're hopeless. I need to go pray for you. To which I responded with all the wisdom of a 16-year-old at this point. Why are you going to pray to Mary? She just has to pass that prayer request along to Jesus because Jesus is the one that the Bible says intercedes on our behalf before the Father. Wow. That did not land well. (laughs) So a Protestant-Catholic war starts in the second floor of my house. All of these very brief illustrations of something we all pretty much know, and that is when you start talking about people's religious beliefs and you start talking about Jesus things can get really tense really fast. And the question is, how do we, those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, how do we, in a helpful way and in an effective way, have conversations with religious people that will actually help them understand Jesus and how to respond to Jesus. It's not easy. If it was easy, we'd all be doing it really, really well. But the truth is, we're not all doing it really, really well. So, what we're going to do is we're going to first look at 1 Peter chapter 3. From 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to gain three tips on, in general, how to have effective conversations about Jesus. Then we're going to go to Philippians chapter 3, and from Philippians chapter 3, we're going to grab three tips very specifically about how to have conversations about Jesus with very religious people, whether they are Christian religious or non-Christian religious. It doesn't matter. All right, so we're going to dive right in. First Peter chapter 3. Read just a few verses here. Starting with verse 15. But in your hearts... Set apart Christ as Lord. And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Okay, three quick tips to pull out of here. The first one, Peter says, is be prepared. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared. What does that mean? It means you're ready. It means that you are ready to have intelligent conversation with people, which means you and I need to be doing our homework, which means you and I, as we continue to grow up in the faith, as we continue to mature in our faith, as we continue to study our Bibles, we read good books, we continue to learn more and more about Jesus and about what he accomplished and what he taught and what that means for our lives. We're, we're, we're becoming more and more prepared. And the goal here is not that you would ever get to the place where you could give an answer to every single question that has ever fired at you from anybody in any given circumstance. You'll probably never get there. So what we're not saying is you need to be the Bible answer man or Bible answer woman for every question that anybody is ever going to ask you. But it does stand to reason that you and I should be getting better and better at having these conversations with people the longer that we're in the faith. It means we need to be prepared. We need to be doing our homework. And if we fail, if we fail to keep investigating these things and keep building up our foundation of knowledge, then what happens is those people that are critics or critical about Christianity or Christians, all we're doing is proving them right when they will say things like, they just shut off their brains and take things by faith. And the air quotes are not a compliment. Right? People that are critical of Christians or Christianity would say, yeah, you're just shutting your brain off and you're just taking things by blind faith. Faith is good. But there's also reasons. There are are things that you can learn. There's a base of knowledge that you can acquire that helps us understand that our faith is reasonable, that it does make sense, that it's not just nonsense. And we need to be prepared to be able to engage in these conversations, which means all of us need to be continually growing and learning and building up our base of knowledge. Now, one tip here would be, very practically speaking if you have read a book that has helped you or you read a blog that has helped you understand a little bit more about your faith, then you just kind of make note of that. You just start building a little library. And I don't mean like building a building in your, building a room in your house and having thousands of books. I just mean if you have read something that was helpful f- for you to understand the reasons behind faith and the, some of the things you see in the Bible, then as you're talking with somebody, you can just refer them to it. Oh, you know what? I read a good book once. There was a chapter in there on this topic. Tell you what, why don't we both read that chapter, I'll get you the chapter, we can both read it, and then we can talk about it. So you can be prepared to engage in these conversations without feeling like you have to be like the world's greatest theologian or Bible expert, you're just constantly becoming more and more prepared in how to have these conversations. All right, the next tip is Peter says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Now, hope here is very specifically linked to Jesus. When Peter says hope, he doesn't just mean wishful thinking, happy person, positive outlook. He's not saying, always be prepared to tell everybody why you're so jolly. What he's saying is, always be prepared to give people the reason for the hope that you have. And Peter very specifically links hope to Jesus. Let's take a look at a few verses that come in this letter prior to what we're looking at. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Or a little later on, through him you believe in God. All these hymns are Jesus. Through Jesus you believe in God, who raised Jesus from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. Hope is linked to Jesus. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we look at the tips specific to having conversations with religious people. Third tip, when you have these conversations, Peter tells these believers, you do so with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Do you know what Christians are not always known for? Gentleness and respect. And that's a problem. We don't ever want to become a stumbling block for people. We don't ever want to become the obstacle between somebody and Jesus. And the way that we engage in these conversations matters. Now, when Peter is writing to this group of believers, they are are living in a culture that is very anti-Jesus. They were facing a lot of oppression. They were facing a lot of criticism. Uh, uh, As the years go by, they're facing more and more persecution. And so Peter's coaching to them is kind of at a higher level than what a lot of what we face. We're talking about how to converse with people. Peter's coaching them on how to be able to stand up under persecution and harshness and really severe, rigorous criticism. And so the stakes are a little bit higher for these people than they are for us in the United States of America, but the coaching still works for us. So he says, you need to engage with gentleness. First is Gentleness. Now, I used to to read this verse and think that gentleness and respect were kind of interchangeable, that he's just saying the same thing twice. Just be gentle and respectful, which means engage in a responsible way with another human being. But it actually works on two levels. The gentleness is the horizontal level. When I'm talking to somebody about Jesus, faith matters, all of those things, I do so with gentleness. And a way to think about gentleness would just be to think about what it's not, okay? So gentleness would be the absence of harshness, violence, anger, roughness, contentiousness, maliciousness, okay? Just don't be nasty, is essentially what Peter is saying. Don't be nasty. And the reason that he's coaching them towards that is that those that were in that culture in that day that were anti-Christian, anti-Jesus, they were nasty to the Christians. And so Peter is saying, listen, don't get sucked in. Engage in conversation, but don't behave like them. You engage in these conversations with gentleness. Guys normally don't like the word gentle because it feels like it's passive and it lacks action and I just become a doormat. And that is not what the word gentle means. Gentle is just being in control of yourself enough that you know when to use the right amount of force. Let me give you an example. In parenting my children, if I'm staying under control and I am gently fathering my children, it means... That I am using the correct amount of emphasis and force for what is required. Okay, so I don't want to be harsh or violent or angry all the time. But it doesn't. It also doesn't mean I don't. It doesn't mean that I don't discipline my kids or there's not boundaries or punishment. But it means that it should kind of match up. In other words, if one of my daughters spills her milk at the table, I don't scream at her and send her to a room for a week. That would not be gentle, right? So it is a, gentleness is a matter of understanding the situation and using the correct amount of force necessary and no more. So we engage in conversations with gentleness. But then there's respect, which in our New Testament, respect and fear are the same words. So when we talk about respecting God or fearing God, so the gentleness goes horizontal. The respect thing goes vertical. So as we are engaging in conversations about Jesus when people, some people might be criticizing our belief or really trying to figure out why it is we believe what we believe, but some people aren't critical. They're just genuinely interested in your life and your faith. What we do is we we do so with a respect and a fear of God. And the reason this, this helps us is if you genuinely fear God, if you genuinely respect God, it means that at the end of the day, you really believe that God's got your back. At the end of the day, you believe that God holds your life in his hands. It means that you believe that God holds your future in his hands. It means that you believe that God holds your eternity in his hands. And if you truly believe that, then it allows you to stay under control. It allows you to engage in a more responsible way. Because in the back of your mind, you're thinking, listen, it doesn't matter how much you criticize me. It doesn't matter what you do to me. Ultimately, God's got me. And in a society where they were being persecuted, that matters a whole lot. Now, for us, it's probably not physical persecution or martyrdom, but people can criticize you. People can can kind of set you outside of their social circles because of your faith. And if we respect God, at the end of the day, we're able to engage with them gently and, and engage in these conversations responsibly because at the end of the day, we would just say, you know what, God's got it, and I just trust him. And it it brings a little bit of sanity to the whole thing, right? So being prepared, hope, and gentleness, and respect. Now, here here is an example that played out in in recent days that will help highlight this. It's the whole Chick-fil-A thing. Holy cow. Like, this is an organization that makes chicken sandwiches and waffle fries. And this has blown up into a massive thing. It's finally kind of subsiding now. All right, so it's it's a conversation about beliefs about marriage, which is a very religious conversation. And what I found very interesting, specifically in the social media world, is how Christians were engaging the conversation. And when I say conversation, I'm probably using that term loosely. Because if you look at what some Christians are posting in the blogosphere or on their Facebook pages about this topic, it's just not helpful, it's not gentle. It's not respectful to God. It's certainly not going to help someone that doesn't really understand Jesus or believe in Jesus say, oh yeah, you're really nasty and disrespectful, um, so could I please know the Jesus you know? It doesn't work that way. And so one of the things that we need to be careful of, especially when we are sitting behind our computer screens, is that we never engage in dialogue in a way that we wouldn't engage if we weren't sitting there with that person. I would have to believe that some of us, when we're posting things in social media world, we're saying things, and we're saying things in a way that we would never say if we were sitting at a table with that person having a cup of coffee. So don't do it. It's not helpful. What you want to do is, with gentleness and respect, engage people in conversations. Alright, those are three general tips about engaging in these conversations. Now we're going to turn to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to look at three very specific things about how having conversations about Jesus with religious people. As you turn to Philippians chapter 3, let me just point out something that should be obvious to all of us. In the United States of America, there are very religious people. There are also very non-religious people. And then there is this odd third category, it's those of us that like to consider ourselves spiritual but not religious. Right? There's a whole category of people that say, Jesus I like, church I hate. Faith things and belief things I'm okay with, organized religion or church buildings, no thank you. Right? So you have this whole category of people that would say, I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. Some of us gathered this weekend are like that. Uh, If you look on Facebook profiles... I find it very interesting that there are a lot of Christians that simply will not put Christian as their religion on their Facebook profile. They will put everything but that. They will put follower of Jesus, lover of the Messiah, fan of Jesus. Like, they'll find a way to say me and Jesus like I like Jesus, but they won't say Christian because there is this like, weird, funky sentiment in our culture that just doesn't like religion like it's a bad thing. So as we're talking about how to engage in conversations with religious people, let me just make a public confession. I am a religious person. And I know that sounds absurd for a pastor to have to admit that out loud, but for, for I don't necessarily like to consider myself religious, and I'm not sure why, but when I look at my life, I'm very religious. I grew up going to church every single weekend. I went to a Bible college to learn my Bible better. I am a pastor. I spend almost all of my waking hours at a church talking with people about faith, studying my Bible, teaching young people about faith, creating programs to help young people engage in faith, teaching on weekends at church services, performing weddings, performing funerals, serving people communion. Listen, I am like the walking definition of religious, So in some weird way, when we're talking about how to have conversation with people about Jesus who are very religious, we're talking about talking to each other, but also other people that are religious. So uh, this whole weird category of people that like to consider themselves spiritual but not religious, uh, here's an interesting spin on this. So whenever you're talking to somebody that likes to say, I'm spiritual but not religious, and you have a good conversation with them, essentially what you will find out is they think certain thoughts about God, right? So they do have a belief system. They've made it up. This is what I believe about God. And they have their own religious practices. They say, well, I won't go to that church building with other people, but what I do is once a week in my house I do this, and then I serve at the soup kitchen. Right? So they have created a set of practices that they engage in because of their belief system. So they have a belief system, and they have a set of practices. And they'll say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And what I, the way I want to spin that is, you're probably more religious than the rest of us because you're the founder of your own religion. You've created your own belief system. You've created your own set of practices. So while the rest of us are following a religion, you've created your own. So on some level, we would all just kind of have to admit we're all somewhat religious, just some more than others. Okay, so three tips on how to have these conversations with religious people. Philippians chapter 3, let's read a few verses here. This is the Apostle Paul, who has a pedigree. This man is religious, brilliantly religious, zealously religious, studied under the best Bible teachers, was born into the right religious families. Everything about Paul, if we want to play the comparison game and say, are you more religious than me, Paul wins every time. Let's see what Paul has to say. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, and if you have your Bible, you can write the word religiosity there, and it will help you understand this. If anyone else thinks that he has reason to put confidence in their religiosity, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But Paul's saying, look... You want to play the comparison game? I win. You want to talk about zeal? I'm more zealous than you. You want to talk about following every detail of my religion? I'm better than you. You want to talk about having the pedigree and the training? I'm better than you. Paul is saying, listen to me. I'm about the most religious guy you're ever going to bump into, so listen to what I'm about to say. Whatever was to my prophet, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more... I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. First thing Paul points out here is all about zeal and sincerity. Zeal and sincerity. Verses four through six, Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh or their religious practices, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. What Paul saying here? You want to talk about zeal and sincerity? I so believe the Christians were wrong that I was murdering them. This is Paul talking. That's zeal and sincerity right there. And when we talk about zeal and sincerity, when we're having conversations about G- Jesus with religious people, one of, one of the hurdles that we have to get over is this idea that the only thing that matters is sincerity. Someone will say, well, if you're sincere about your faith and I'm sincere about my faith, as long as we're both sincere, then everything's okay. Everything is not okay. Because you can be sincere... And be sincerely wrong. That's the point Paul's making here. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Just me saying that out loud probably raises some people's blood pressure. That comes across as very intolerant. I'm not being nasty. I'm not being angry. I'm not being malicious. I'm just pointing out something that we all know from our everyday lives. But when we put it into the religion category, we're very uncomfortable. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. It's not just about sincerity. So as I'm studying for this, I'm in my office, and I call my wife. And I say, hey, Deanne, tell me a time when I knew for sure I was right about something, and you and I were arguing about it, and then I found out I was wrong. Because I know it happens all the time. And so she's on the phone, and she's like, I can't think of one right now. I'm like, I need one. I need one for this teaching. And so Michael, my seventh grader, is standing right there, and so... Deanne, you know, says, hey, Michael, can you think of a time where dad was adamant that he was right, and then we found out later he was wrong? And Michael says, there's so many, I can't keep track of them. (laughs) Deanne calls me back a few minutes later. She's like, I got one, and this one is so annoying. She says, all right, so this happens more than I want to admit. Okay, so let's say I need some Advil, and I go to the pantry where we keep our medicine, and our medicine is in this little Rubbermaid bin and I'm looking for the Advil, and I can't find it. And so I yell to Deanne, who might be several rooms away, Deanne, where's the Advil? And she'll say, it's in the medicine bucket in the pantry. And I'm like, no, it's not. I'm standing right in front of the pantry. I'm looking at the bucket. It's not in there. And she's like, no, it's in there. I know it's in there. And I'm like, Deanne, I'm standing in front of the pantry. I'm looking at the bucket. It's not in there. And she'll say, well, did you dig through the bucket? Deanne, I've looked through the bucket three times. I'm standing right, and I'm getting angry. How dare you insult my intelligence? Here's what happens without fail Deanne walks in, reaches over my shoulder, grabs the Advil bottle, hands it to me, loves it. and you applaud her. What? I'm sincere. I'm zealous in my conversation. I was sincerely wrong, and that happens a lot in my house. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Another way to think about it might be if you're driving your car and you're going somewhere, a few-hour trip. You can make a wrong turn and not know it and sincerely think that you're still headed in the right direction and drive for another hour and then find out you are woefully lost or off course. And your sincerity has absolutely nothing to do with your lostness. Right? Now, we take what we kind of all like knowledge, not in the religious world, and we apply it in the religious category and our blood pressure all goes up. You don't have to be nasty about it, but it is completely logical to recognize that there is more to this conversation than just zeal or sincerity. So if you find yourself constantly hitting a dead end with religious people and they say, well, I'm sincere and you're sincere, so can't we just leave it at that? The answer is no, because I love you too much and I care about you too much to just let it sit there. Zeal and sincerity. Then the second one here is Paul talks about confidence in the flesh, which is really talking about confidence in our own religiosity. Verses 7 to 9. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ. Just stop there. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. In other words, Paul's saying, all of these things that defined my life when it comes to my religion and my religiosity, all of those things that you would put in the positive category for me, you know what? I consider it loss now because it, it distracted me away from what is really true, and that is Jesus. This is something that is so sneaky for some of us that some of us start gravitating in this direction, and we don't even know it. And, and it is the fact that we, can, we have a tendency to put our hope in our religion instead of in Jesus. And here's what I mean by this. Let me ask you this question. If I asked you, if you died today and God asked you, "Why should I let you into my heaven?" what would you say? if we are putting our hope and confidence in our religion, we might come up with answers like, well, I'm Lutheran, or I'm Catholic, or I'm Methodist, or I'm Southern Baptist, or I got baptized as a baby, or and you start listing religious things you have done or affiliations you have had or currently do have, you know, I'd say, I'm a Christ community Does that get me in? And as you start talking about this, If everything you're listing has everything to do with your religious activity or your religious affiliation, it's quite possible you might be missing the point. And Paul is saying, don't put confidence in your flesh. When you're having conversations with religious people, religious people tend to have all of their poker chips in the center of the table of their religion. And what Paul is saying is, look, it's all about Jesus. You want to talk about salvation, forgiveness of sins, being set free from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, being set free from being a slave to your sin, to serving Christ, to be a part of God's eternal kingdom. If you want to talk about all of these things, you must talk about Jesus because he is the centerpiece of all of this. A few years ago, uh, this is more than a few years ago, gosh, I'm getting old. Um, This was a lot of years ago. I was pastoring in Tennessee and there was a young couple that just had their first baby. And the wife's side of the family were rigorous Lutherans. And they have this baby. And this is an interdenominational church that I was pastoring at. So her side of the family is already not pleased with the fact that she's not attending a Lutheran church. And they have this baby. And her side of the family is emphatically telling her that this baby must be christened or baptized as a Lutheran. And so I actually, we actually put together like a Lutheran christening, did it at their house, like did this whole thing to kind of keep the war from starting in their family tree. It's very interesting how we can very quickly link all of our hope and all of our confidence to our religious affiliations. I'm a Methodist, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Lutheran, I'm a Southern Baptist, I'm a Pentecostal, I'm a charismatic. I'm not any of those, so that makes me better because I'm interdenominational. I'm the best of all of them, right? Right? We have to be careful. And what Paul is saying is don't put all your money on the fact that you're religious. And then the third point here Paul, Paul's making the point here Jesus, 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 Jesus. He, in several verses here, it's I want to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus. I wanna, it's all about Jesus. And then in verse 10, he says I want to know Christ. Paul boils it down Look, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is linking this all to Jesus. It's all for the sake of Christ. It's all about Jesus. Now, here is where we get into tricky conversations. The problem here when we're talking about all of these different religions and religious people is that Jesus really doesn't leave us any room for the all paths lead to God mentality. Because Jesus says things like, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And if you want to know God the Father, you must come through me. Hello? That doesn't leave a whole lot of room for us to say all paths lead to God. We must reckon with Jesus. You know, there is a, there's a bumper sticker that's becoming more and more popular. Uh, let's take a look at it. Have you seen this bumper sticker out there? It, it's starting to pop up more and more and more. You know, first it was like the Christian fish emblem. I'm not much of a put an emblem on my car type guy. So first there was the Christian fish, and then I thought it was funny. I'm not a Darwinist, but I did think the little Darwin thing was funny because I thought it was a clever retort to the Christian fish emblem. I just think it's funny that like car emblems and bumper stickers are like a conversation in and of themselves. You know, like a bumper sticker will come out and then the opposing viewpoint makes their bumper sticker and then they make their bumper sticker. Well, here's a bumper sticker And I found it interesting. I'm like, I wonder who made this and why they made it. Well, this, when you just look at it face value with all of the different symbols of different world religions and belief systems, when you look at that, you might think that this person is saying all religions are equally true. Just pick one. That wasn't his point when he made this bumper sticker. The reason he made this bumper sticker was this. He said, look, could we all just stop killing each other? Could we stop hurting each other in the name of religion? Could we just exist on the planet together? This is not a statement about whether or not all religions are equally valid. This is a statement about coexisting as humans. And you look at something like that, and it brings up the question, okay, so let's talk, which religion is true? Is Jesus true? Are all religions equally valid? And I already pointed out that Jesus makes some claims that force us to reckon with him, and so you can't just be quick to say, all paths lead to God, because then we're back to the whole, as long as you're sincere, you're okay, which we all know now, that is not necessarily a great line of reasoning. But there is, there are some overlaps in the world religions. Like, you can talk to a Buddhist, and they will talk to you about love and peace, just like Jesus talks about love and peace. And so not everything about the Buddhist religion is wrong. But what you have to recognize is, or deal with is, What does this believe about Jesus? Jesus is the focal point. Jesus is the point of contention in humanity. Jesus is the savior of the world according to the scriptures. So let me just give you a quick example and and then I'll be done. You have Christianity, which would say Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. He is the Messiah, the one who was promised in the Old Testament to come and be the savior of the world. Jewish people would say, Jesus is not the promised Messiah. Well, now we have a bone of contention, don't we? They both can't be right. Throw Islam into the mix. Islam would say Jesus was just another good teacher. So now we have three contradictory views of Jesus. It is completely illogical to say all three of those religions are equally true. They're not. And the place that we have to get to is, what do we believe about Jesus? So when you are having conversations with very religious people, a really helpful thing to do, instead of going down a million and one different rabbit trails, which you could do, and you might find it interesting, and if you have plenty of time, by all means, have coffee and engage in conversation. But a really helpful question would be, can you tell me what you believe about Jesus? I just want to understand how you view Jesus and how... Then, another helpful thing would be for all of us to every once in a while go back to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which reveal to us who Jesus was and how he lived and what he did and what he taught. As believers in Jesus, we should be going back and giving ourselves a refresher course on this Jesus. And maybe it would be helpful if you're talking to someone that's very religious, whether it's non-Christian religious or some Christian denomination, to say, i tell you what, let's do this. Let's both read the Gospel of Mark or let's both read the Gospel of John and get back together, and let's just talk about what, what we're grappling with when it comes to the person of Jesus. Because really, that's at the heart of all of this. I want what Paul is saying is what I want to know. If Jesus is the savior of the world, if he is the centerpiece of humanity, if he really is the eternal son of God sent so that you and I could be reconciled with our creator God, then that really is the biggest deal on the table, right? So we engage with gentleness and respect We understand that our hope is Jesus. We're prepared. We engage in these conversations in a way that helps people deal with what's really on the table.